Pray with me. Lord Jesus, uh, you are worthy. You're worthy of all of our attention, all of our, frankly, our lives. And so we pray that you would work in us now as we come to your word, that we might hear it, that it might be life to us, that we can respond to it in a way uh, that shows that you're the very Lamb of God who took away our sins. Uh, The very Lamb of God who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I want to read verses uh, 1 through uh, 24. And if I could, again, since this is a long narrative passage, I want to kind of annotate as I go, just sort of fill in some some background, some things that may help you just as, you, as, we read, as we read through it. So the first 24 verses of Acts in chapter 12. I hear the word of God. About that time, Herod the king... Now, this particular Herod, there's a number of different Herods in the New Testament era. Uh, this particular Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod who was the ruler at the time of the birth of Jesus. And you remember his ruthlessness, Herod the Great, his ruthlessness in killing all the little boys uh, in hopes of killing uh, the Messiah, killing this rival king. That was Herod the Great. There was another Herod and then another Herod. And that third Herod was the Herod who was alive and ruling at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist and then, and then uh, had a sort of a cameo appearance at the trial of Jesus. Um, uh, then this Herod comes along after him. And so this is the particular Herod. We'll find uh, some things out about him uh, because he was uh, in many ways very seemingly super uh, uh, sympathetic to uh, the cause of Judaism, but yet was such a political pragmatist that it was likely that he did all of that just simply to win their favor and to make life go easier for him. So this is that Herod. So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, meaning he arrested them. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Likely he was beheaded. Now this particular James is of James and John fame, one of the apostles of Jesus. He's not James, the brother of Jesus, that will come across throughout the book of Acts later since he now has been killed. Uh, so he was uh, in the inner circle of Jesus. You can recognize the little expression, Peter, James, and John, uh, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, with Jesus uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and so uh, in the inner circle, if you will, of Peter, James, and John. Um, he was nicknamed with his brother, one of the sons of thunder. So you can tell something perhaps a little bit about his personality. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. You see his pragmatism, Herod's pragmatism at that point. Uh, This was during the days of unleavened bread, that is the Passover time. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. That means to, to try him publicly with the hopes that he would humiliate Peter with the hopes then that he would have Peter killed uh, as well. And you can see the, 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 the security here. It's uh, four squads of soldiers. That would be 16 men in 
different uh, teams, four different teams, if you will, four different squads. Uh, and at one point in time, they rotated about every three hours to remain fresh. And so there was no way that he wanted Peter uh, to escape. He may have heard of, 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 of Peter's escape uh, previously. Uh, we read in Acts chapter 5 how an angel came and let all the apostles out who had been arrested. So he wasn't taking any chances, this Herod. Um, he couldn't try him right away because it was Passover time and that would upset the Jews. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Uh, just before we go on too far, I just want to make sure you understand the contrast between James and Peter. James was killed, and we'll see that Peter is going to be miraculously freed. It's important to keep in your head. Notice we hear nothing about prayer for James. That doesn't mean people didn't pray for James. It may have been that he was arrested and killed so quickly there wasn't time. Uh, we simply don't have that record at all about what the church did in the context of James being arrested before he was killed. But we do know that the church gathered to pray earnestly uh, for Peter. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so very last minute, he had been in jail for a while, uh, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Uh, normally, there would be perhaps one guard chained to the prisoner uh, and then maybe another guard at the door, but unlikely. In this case, there were two guards chained to the prisoner. So each, probably, of Peter's hands were chained to these guards and then there were two guards guarding uh, the door. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. Peter must have been pretty soundly asleep that the light didn't wake him up. He had to be kind of shaken and woke. It's interesting that the night prior to his being tried and perhaps killed, Peter decided to sleep. Uh, he may have remembered Jesus' word to him that he would die as an old man. I don't know how old he was here. I don't know how old he thought he was here. But he at least didn't think, he at least thought he was if he was going to die, that would be fine. If not, um, so he fell asleep in that soundly, so much so that the angel really had to poke him to get him up. So he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and uh, follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know what was being done by the angel. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Again, very understandable given the way Peter's life has been going lately. When they had passed the first and second guard, amazingly so, don't miss that, because these were guards who were paid to be awake and paid to be watching, and they were really good at what they did, and so they sort of got by them. Uh, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. That would be cool. And they went out along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That's one of those great understatements in the Bible. Way to go, Peter. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, uh, whose other name was Mark. So John, Mark's mom. Where many... Uh, gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door at the, at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Again, uh, comforting that this group of people, many 
I'm sure who were apostles praying, uh, didn't really expect to see Peter that night, even though my guess is they were praying for his release. Um, but she kept insisting that it was so and so they kept saying, it is his angel. I don't know what they meant by that exactly. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, probably uh, he wanted them to be silent for two reasons. One, so he could talk, but also because it was night and they were probably the only people awake in that area and they probably didn't want to get caught And Peter is probably thinking at this point rather pragmatically since he does go and hide. He's thinking, okay, I can't presume on another miracle, so be quiet. You know, this is a clandestine little prayer group. Let's not uh, get any notice. So he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, tell these things to James, obviously, James the brother of Jesus, not James the brother of John, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Uh, Again, showing the significance of this man Peter in the mind of Herod. And then he, that is Herod, uh, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. In other words, Tyre and Sidon felt that they were in trouble because they needed uh, the favor of Herod in order to get food. He was angry with them, so they went to Blastus, who was the king's assistant, and he became their intermediary so they could talk to the king and hopefully persuade him to, to like them again. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now, you you, you see the characters. You see Herod and you see his disdain, if you will, for the church. You see his disdain for Christians because they were getting in his political way. And so he could make friends with the bigger group of people, the group of people that, that inhabited that area and had inhabited that area for a long time, who was under his rule, the Jews. And so to make them happy, he sort of tested the waters with James. And James, again, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder in this inner circle of Jesus was arrested and beheaded and killed. Uh, He took the political temperature, found that the people uh, there, the Jewish people there, thought that was a good thing. And and so he arrested Peter, thinking, well, uh, perhaps thinking, I'll one-up. I'll go to the the one that's perhaps most well-known of all these apostles, this this one Peter. Uh, The church had had experienced uh, a fair measure of peace since the stoning of Stephen, as we've been reading through in chapters 8, chapter 9, 10, 11. Uh, there hasn't been persecution per se, but now it seems to be rearing up. They're back in Jerusalem, and, and it seems to be rearing up again uh, for whatever reason. Uh, here we see because of this political reason uh, with, with, uh, with Herod. And so he, he takes Peter and he, he, he secures him. Uh, and then we see that Peter is eventually left out let out and we see that Herod eventually 
dies. What I want you to see in the midst of this is a number of things, but primarily to see that the most important character in this whole incident is God. That it begins with this upheaval and these people coming against him and coming against his church and it ends with his word powerfully spreading and not deterred at all and the one who came against it who seemed so fierce in the beginning isn't any stronger than a bunch of worms. Right? So if you get nothing else, just kind of hang on to that. But to get there, I want to see this, this relationship between the situation with James and the situation with Peter. Because I think it's a very real one in the context of our lives as well. Not that one of us is probably going to get killed for the faith this afternoon and by Thursday another be miraculously let out of prison. But the point is that how do we talk about the fact that this one apostle James is killed and this other apostle Peter is miraculously, miraculously set free. Don't you wonder what it, be, what it would be like for the friends and family of James to hear the testimony of Rhoda about what had happened on the night that Peter was set free. I mean, how even would Peter feel? Peter and James were fishing partners, business partners, when they were called to follow Jesus. They were part of this inner circle. They knew each other well. They had experienced this life together with Jesus. They experienced this decade in the early church all together and worshiping together and risking together and all of that. And now here they find themselves, here Peter finds himself with, I would say, his dear friend being killed. That would cause him to grieve and then to think that he was arrested should have been killed if you will if things had gone according to Herod's plan and now he's alive how do you live with that and how would John the apostle John James brother what would he be thinking about this this God that he served and loved and knew this this whole church endeavor which they were after as he sits and he looks at his friend Peter alive and his brother James dead. And the reason that I raise that is because it's a very real thing in our own church. Because in any given day, any given week, any given month, any given year, we have people blessed in various ways and we have people experiencing deep tragedies as well. I've experienced that in the context of my own life as a, as a pastor. Uh, on a particular day, I was sitting in my office, which was not here but in another place, uh, preparing to do a wedding of a dear couple that I loved immensely and got a call from my choir director telling me that his son had committed suicide. So here I am. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. The wedding's at 2. In my family, I run down and I pray and cry and live out those moments with my dear friend whose son was dead. And then I run and I do a wedding and I smile and I'm happy for this couple that I dearly love. The next day, I baptized the baby of a family 
who had a great deal of difficulty uh, conceiving, and that afternoon was met with another couple who couldn't have children. How do we explain that? Uh, We hear testimonies of people sharing that their cancer is in remission. In the same week that we hear someone else's cancer is back, we hear testimonies of people sharing with us on a given day that their child has come to faith after many years of rebellion. And we hear testimony then of another family saying, I've prayed for my son, my daughter, for 30 years. And they show no evidence of faith at all. Uh, There's a pregnancy. There's someone who can't have children. There's someone who finds the person they're going to marry and is excited. There's another who's been praying for years for a spouse and is lonely. And we wonder what's really going on here. Someone loses a job, someone gets a job. Someone has the job of their dreams, someone's in a job they feel stuck in. Both are praying, both are following Christ, and, and yet we wonder why the difference between these, these, these two. And that's what would be taking place here in the context of this Christian community. Even on that prayer night, I suspect the Apostle John, I don't know this, but I suspect the Apostle John was there when Peter showed up. Could be that his mom was there. She was a pretty famous lady in the life of the early church, but now perhaps she's dead. I don't know. We don't hear of her after. She attends... uh, the grave of the tomb of Jesus, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James, the mother of James and John. What is she thinking? She may have been there as well. I mean, how do you how do you really process all of that? Now, this wouldn't be any problem for us at all if we didn't believe three things about God. Wouldn't be any problem at all if we didn't believe three things about God. Number one, if we didn't believe that He was completely sovereign. And number two, if we didn't believe He was completely wise. And number three, if we didn't believe that he loved us. But you see, here's this sovereign one who loves us, who knows the best, who wills the best, who has the power to bring about the best. And yet these kinds of polar experiences happen among his people, the people he claims to love, the people for whom Christ died. And so we believe these things. We we believe that God is, is completely... Sovereign over all things. In fact, just let me just read a, uh, some passages, some verses, some of which you're very familiar with. Proverbs 16.9, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of the man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21.30, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Why? Because as we sang in that opening hymn, O Father, you are sovereign in all the worlds you made. The mighty word was spoken. And there was creation. He's the one who's made it all. It can't trick him. It can't come against him and win. He knows it intricately. He has the power over it. There's nothing within it that's stronger than him. And so so, so, so he's, the, he's the one. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We read this. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. 
so that man may not find out anything that will be after him or in his future. Isaiah 46.10 speaks of God as the one declaring the end from the beginning in the ancient times, uh, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. There's simply no thwarting God at all. Um, Lamentations chapter 3, who's spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. In other words, you can't say anything is going to happen unless the Lord says, okay. It's just simply impossible. We can't go against him and what he's ordained to come to pass. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Daniel chapter 4. All the inhabitations of the earth are, are accounted as nothing. And he, that is God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can, say, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is simply sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over people. He's sovereign over nations. There is no one stronger than God. In fact, this very passage screams that to us. Because God intervened in what was the most humanly impossible escape. I mean, that's why I think Luke goes into such detail. He tells us, listen, every precaution that could possibly be made with Peter was made by Herod. He looked in the book and he says, if we want to secure a prisoner, how do we do that? And he looked and he said, there have been zero escapes when we've handcuffed him to two guards and put two at the door and rotated every three hours new fresh guards. Nobody's ever escaped under that scenario. And so there he was. But God intervened. Amazingly, Peter wasn't expecting it. He was asleep. He wasn't preparing anything. He didn't think that through. He was completely God. How did he get by those two guards that were right there? Chains fell off. Don't you think they would have noticed? Even if they were asleep, don't you think the light would have gotten them, the chains falling off, the guards at the door, how they get by, the one in the city gate just opened? So if God can do that, why couldn't he save James? Well, he certainly could have. In fact, if God could do that, why couldn't he, he kept them from being arrested in the first place? You remember Saul of Tarsus when he was in Damascus. He gets word that there's a plot against his life, and so he's, he's, he's let out and, and he escapes why couldn't God have done that with James and Peter? And even then, how in the world did Herod get into power in the first place? Couldn't God have stopped that? Well, yeah. So, you know, you just keep going back one after the other after the other and, and we just have to stop after a while and go, God is sovereign. And it brings us back to the age-old question. Is God good? Is God sovereign? How can he be both? And we ask that because we say, if he's sovereign, why then doesn't he overrule in all these situations and take all this bad stuff out? So, if he's sovereign, he must not be good. But if he's good, then he must not be sovereign because if he were sovereign, how could all these bad things continue to be happening? And yet we read in the scripture and we read that God is sovereign and God is loving and good. And God is wise. As our friend Jerry Bridges puts it in a book that if you haven't read, you must, called Trusting God. It's in my top five of all the books that affected my life, at least. Um, but um, he puts it like this. Because God loves us, he wills the best. But because 
God is wise. He knows what is best. And because God is sovereign, he can do what is best. So the question is, how is this best? Have you ever noticed as you read through the scripture, God rarely, if ever, answers the questions, why and how? And if they're ever posed, the answer he gives is who? He answers the question of why and how, essentially with who. He doesn't say how he does it because he's the infinite and sovereign God. Could we really get it if he did? But he answers those questions by telling us about himself, by giving us the who, by saying this is who I am. And he does it so that we would trust him. Because you see, in the midst of this situation here in this passage, in the midst of our church life, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to, we're to weep with those who weep. That's God's wisdom and his command to us. And so how can we do that? How could, how could James' family and friends weep over his death and yet rejoice at Peter's release? How could Peter's family and friends and all of that weep about James and rejoice with Peter? How, how could you do that without guilt, without anger and bitterness? It's because we trust the one who loves us, the one who is wise, and the one who is sovereign. And we know that about him because he gives us the answer of why and how with who. You remember Job's situation. Uh, you remember that situation that, 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 that he experienced. He asked God why a number of times, sometimes in a very bold and perhaps even brash way. Uh, when I read through Job, sometimes I just I read it like this. Going, Job, I can't believe you said that <laughs> to God. You know, <laughs> get him, God. Not, not me, I'm just reading about it. Um, uh, one commentator said, Job asked why 16 times in his, in that book. Because he didn't know. First, he didn't have uh, available to him, chapters 1 and 2. We at least see something in the interplay going on between God and Satan. But we know then that God gives permission to Satan. Thus, this isn't Satan acting arbitrarily or sovereignly in any way. God gives uh, the freedom, if you will, the okay, if you will, ordains that Satan can come and take away Job's fortune and take away Job's family. And that's so easy to say. As if, oh yeah, because we know how this is going to work out. And then he gives Job the okay, uh, Satan the okay to take away Job's health. And so he suffers in ways that are unimaginable for most of us, probably. And he doesn't have a clue. He doesn't even know that. He doesn't even know that God is behind this in any way, shape, or form. He doesn't even know that God is saying to Satan, Job will glorify me so you can have at him. He doesn't even say that. He doesn't even get any comfort from that. And God doesn't even tell him that at the end. Because at the end, you remember what takes place when, when Job finally is exasperated and goes to God and God comes to him and he just simply says to Job, where were you when I made this? Do, do you understand how to put the stars in place? Do you understand how to, how to make the sun uh, shine at certain times and not at other times? Can, can you negotiate that? Can you do that? And at the end of all that, Job chapter 40 says, 
Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I, I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I'll proceed no further. But, but then God isn't finished yet. And so he goes on to the natural creation. He talks about the big animals and the big fish he's made. And he talks about, can, can you handle these, Job? Even, even these, just a big beast or a big fish in the sea. Can, can you handle that? Could you ride those? Could you kill those? And, and of course, the answer is no. And, and God says, but, but I made those. And then at the very end, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know here, and I'll speak. I will question you, and you'll make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself in repentant dust and ashes. At that point, Job even though he's still in the midst of this, still this is before the restoration, his family's still gone, his fortune's still gone. As far as we know, he's still in pain. He's saying, I don't, okay, I don't need to know why because now I've seen you and I trust you. And if this is what you have for me, then I will keep my mouth shut and I will live this out. And that's the way God approaches the whole of Scripture. He begins by telling us about himself. Genesis 1 begins with this great creation scene, this great creation hymn. And he's telling us, I'm the one who made all of this. This is who I am, trust me. He comes to Adam and Eve and he tells them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because they should trust God to define good and evil, not themselves. And they should trust him because he says, look around at everything that I've made. Look at who I am. Look at, look at, look at how I revealed myself to you. The, the who of this, trust me. When, when Moses is, is, is going to go to deliver the Israelites, there's all kinds of questions. It's about how can this happen? How can I, Moses would say, a stutter or just me? I fled there a long time ago. Don't you know they don't like me in Egypt? How, how can all this happen? And God says, tell them I am sent me. Tell them who I am. Tell them that I'm the self-existent one, the self-determining one. Tell them that I'm the God of all. Tell them that so that they'll trust me because that's really the bottom line. It isn't technique, Moses. It's who's in this and I'm in this. And therefore, therefore go. And when God's calling the people of Israel to follow after him and he brings them to Sinai, And he's going to tell them, have no other gods before me. He preambles that. He begins that by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says, this is who I am. Therefore, now, given who I am, trust me, have no other gods before me. Who else would you trust? Now, you're going to go through some difficult things. I'm going to take you right up to a sea that you can't cross. And I'm going to bring your enemy right on your heels. What are you going to do? You better call out to me. You better not just sit there and complain and say, why is this happening to us? This is what they did. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. I really do care for you. I know it doesn't make sense. I know you're thinking, it was much better back there. But trust me. And that's what he calls us to as a as individuals, as a community of people, we go to him asking the question, not why, not so much how, but God, who are you? Show me who you are. That's what I need. What I need is a, is a glimpse of you. And if you show me who you are, 
then I'll be able to live. I'll be able to trust. I'll be able to be sustained and satisfied even in the midst of this circumstance. Though my situation may be really hard and their situation may be what I've always envisioned. I won't envy them and be bitter. I rejoice with them. Because you see, if we can't do that, then we can't have a community of people. We can't be this new community of people that God is forming for himself to give him praise, to show the rest of the world what it's like to be in God. But we can only do that if we trust him with our lives, the good and the bad as we might define it, knowing that he really is at work in all things and working all things for good. The very one's We love him in the very one who's called to follow after him. But notice in a sense that that isn't it in this this passage. There's something else that we can kind of hang our hats on in understanding about who God is. And that is he's also the one who is so sovereign, so powerful, so wise and loving that we know that ultimately whatever comes against him, whatever comes even against us, he will blot out. And that's what we have in this situation with Herod. Again, in the beginning of this passage, Herod, is, is, it seems like he's overcomable, overcomerable or whatever. You can't triumph over him because he's so great. He's so powerful. He's arresting the apostles of Jesus and they seem to have no control over that at all. But yet at the end, what do we see? Josephus, the historian of the day, gives us a, an account of this uh, death of Herod as well. And he writes about a little bit more detail, a little bit different, uh, but, but, but the same essence. He writes in the same way that Luke does. And he says he went before these people. And Josephus gives us a little more detail. He said he was, he was dressed in this, this silvery uh, gown, robe. And it so sparkled and so shined in the sun that people looked at him and said, oh, there's a God. And then he made this pronouncement, as Luke says. And the people said, he sounds like God. And at that point in time, he never said, I'm not God. And by that, it just wasn't an oversight. He didn't say, all these people are stupid. They think I'm God. He really thought he was, in some sense, God. You can see how he was playing God over the lives of James, over the lives of Peter, over the lives of these people. And God comes against him first and releases Peter and says, I'm stronger than you. And then he says, I'm even more powerful than you. You can't mock me. You can't stand against me. Whatever you sow, you'll reap. And these worms were in his intestines. And they killed him. Just worms. The strongest of the strong among us is no stronger than a worm in the hands of God. And therefore we mustn't be afraid. Whatever has come against us, we realize at a point in time, be it in this life or the next, will be gone. We'll be free of it. And so he says, trust me. Perhaps I've given this to you for now. Perhaps this is your calling to suffer in this way. Trust me. I really do love you. I really do know what I'm doing. I really do know the end from the beginning. I really do know the best way for you to go. So trust me. I could change it. I don't want to... I don't, want to, I don't want you to think that I couldn't change this. In fact, I may change it for your best friend. But you trust me. 
and you walk with me. And please understand the day will come. It'll be gone. It can't prevail. And then I think Luke gives us this final sentence in verse 24. And I think this is supposed to thrill our souls. This is supposed to make everything better. This is supposed, this should, this should resonate with all of James' friends and all of Peter's friends. And everybody should read this and go, yes. And it's, but the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. You see, we're so, I'm so, entangled in my own life and what's going on. I ask all the wrong ultimate questions. These are good relative questions, but, but they're not the right ultimate question. Uh, uh, and I get stuck in those sort of little questions like, am I happy? Am I productive? Do I feel affirmed? Am I doing okay? Do people like me? You know, all those kinds of questions. And we think those are the ultimate questions, but they're not. But yet my life is on a roller coaster as to, whether, as to how those little questions are being answered. But the ultimate questions are things like, is God glorified? Is his word really spreading? Is there anything that's kept his word from spreading? And, and John, the apostle, I think could look both ways and say, praise God. The death of my dear brother didn't stop the word of God. The arrest of my dear friend didn't stop the word of God. I'll trust him with both their lives. I'll trust them with my emotions. Because the greatest thing of all is that the word of God is multiplying. And that's what thrills my soul. If that wasn't true, then I would think, all is lost. And that's what I need to get my head around. That's what I need to get my heart around. That's what I need to get my life around. What's going on with the glory of God? What's going on with his word? If through the death of James, the word of God multiplies, why should he live? If through the release of Peter, the word of God multiplies, why should he not be released? And why can't we accept both from the hand of God? If my friend is free and I am not, but the word of God goes forth from his freedom and my pain. Can I not rejoice? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us. Because I have just said words that are way beyond us all. And so I pray, God, that you would enable us to know you, be content in you, Trust in your love for me, us, your wisdom, your power. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind you of our time together uh, Wednesday night and Sunday school classes beginning in about 12 or 15 minutes. Uh, the response to the benediction is Jesus is Lord. That's a true statement, whether you make it or not. It's simply true. The tagline, hallelujah, is, is, is what expresses your heart. If you're happy that he's Lord, meaning that he's the one who is in control of your life and destiny, and you say hallelujah, most especially if you're suffering, it is pleasing to him. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, through his power that is at work within us, to, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, 
Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.